You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. I'm sleeping and right in the middle of a good dream. Like all at once I wake up from something that keeps knocking at my brain. Before I go insane, I hold my pillow to my head. And spring up in my bed Screaming out the words I dread I think I love you I think I love you This morning Hello and welcome to episode 74 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel comic series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This episode, I'm going to be taking a look at the NOM issue number 66, a book that features pencils by Kevin Gabosik and a story by Chuck Dixon. There's no specific date on the story in terms of its setting, so I'm going to be catching our historical section up and filling in a huge gap, which means I'm going to be taking a look at the second half of 1970. And to close out 1970, I've chosen a song that was a number one hit in November of 1970 from a group that was created as part of one of the early 70s most famous hit television shows, The Partridge Family. With David Cassidy singing lead vocals, it's I Think I Love You, which was written by Tony Romeo in 1970 and was produced about a month before the show debuted. During The Partridge Family's first season, the show was featured on two separate episodes, which is definitely helped promote it on its way to number one. Cassidy and Shirley Jones, who played the matriarch of the Partridge family, and by the way, also has an Oscar, were actually the only two people to perform on the record from the cast. The rest were session artists. Cassidy became one of the biggest teen heartthrobs of the 1970s, as did Danny Bonaducci, who played the youngest member of the Partridge family, Although the latter eventually became more infamous than famous, uh, Bonaduce is a former child star who has battled addiction and financial troubles over the last few decades. Our issue is called The Creep, and it came out on January 28, 1992, with a March of 1992 cover date. The cover is by Michael Golden, and it shows three soldiers, two ARVN and one American, the middle one of which is the American, and he is holding his rifle and looking creepily at the reader because, well... He's the creep. As far as Golden's covers go, he's done better. He will do some others better, but he definitely gets the thousand-yard stare down really well. Credits are on this one. Chuck Dixon, writer. Kevin Kabasik, penciler. Rodney Ramos, inker. Phil Felix, letterer and colorist. Don Daly, editor. Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. And this is mainly told through caption boxes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the comic while pausing to describe the action in some key places. It could be like this. It's raining in some ville out in the boonies. Nobody's moving. Mama and Papa and all the other little people are still asleep. But visitors are coming into town. It's that time of year again. Victor Charles is passing the collection plate again. Uncle Ho needs some cash. But it isn't going to work out so easy. He's the best there is. 15,000 meters out or better. Wasted an NVA colonel from close to a mile off with a headshot. Man's a legend. Zeroed in at 1,000. Over 1,000 meters to mark. Aimed at his head for a heart strike. Breathe in. Let it halfway out. Squeeze that trigger. And uh, we go from the Nam, by the way, to uh, a buck getting killed in the mountains. And uh, a father and, and son are hunting. And the son, we're led to believe, is this, this guy, this sniper they're talking about. 
one of the defining features of the sniper of this kid who they'll eventually call the creep is that he has a birthmark, a very large birthmark on his head that kind of looks like it's almost like a Gorbachev sort of splotch like like birthmark. So his father's talking about how, you know, Winchester makes a fine rifle and um, you know, basically teaching him how to hunt father and son. And then uh then our narration boxes start again. Maybe Creep came from Iowa, maybe Kansas, but he grew up on a farm, that's for sure. Somewhere where man and nature have an understanding, where the summers are hard and the winters long and bitter, but he was happy there. He could, and, and then we see him getting uh, harassed at school, being called Creep because of the way he looks. He could never remember not being called that name. They'd always call him Creep. He didn't let it hurt him, not anymore. He didn't care what they called him. And then there's a shot of one of the bullies saying, you think he's ugly, only one thing uglier, his mama. And then he just beats the crap out of the guy and they get chased away. But he wouldn't let them talk about his family. Nothing could touch that. Nothing could hurt that. Nothing could make that bad. He was never creep at home. He was loved there. He was happy in the warmth there. It was where he could be his best. Nothing could touch him there so many years ago. One day, a letter came to the house. He'd seen his father bear up under droughts and blight and brucellosis, but that paper brought the man down to his knees, and it's a uh, foreclosure notice from the IRS. The taxman took the farm and everything they owned. It was nothing his father did. He knew that. He knew who to blame. They took his Winchester away, too. They moved to the city where his father could find work, most things were different there, but some things were the same, and he's still getting harassed at school. Some things were just gone. Things you can't get by working for them. Pride, love. It was all taken away from them. Nothing left. And you see a shot of his uh, father beating his mother. And then his father was taken away. They said it was suicide. He knew better. He knew who to blame. His mother was taken away a little at a time. Piece by piece, she drifted away from them. Then she was gone. She wrote that she would be back. He knew better than that. His brother and sister were taken away to foster homes. He would never see them again. No one would take him. Too withdrawn, they would say. Or too old. He knew better. Now he's in an orphanage. Once again, being called creep and getting bullied. He knew the real reason why they didn't want him. The reason why no one had ever wanted him, would ever want him, and why the only people who had ever wanted him were gone away. He was a creep. But at 17, he found his place in the world. He found that on Paris Island, he found a home. He shows himself to be a good sharpshooter, and he's recommended to sniper school in Quantico. The work was hard at Quantico, the toughest training in the Corps. He loved it all. And then he, he makes it, he graduates, they were giving him back his Winchester. He was assigned to 3rd Marine. He insisted on hunting alone. He refused the match ammo they gave him and loaded his own. Is it anyone you trust? They'd ask. He wouldn't answer. He was the best, so they let him be. How could he tell them that the only man he ever wanted to hunt was take with was taken away from him? They talked about him, his kill rate, his habits, that sleepy look in his eyes, his silence. He was respected and feared, but he didn't know that. Legends never do. 
And then he gets an assignment basically to go out and, and find certain ARVN and uh, certain certain people. He gets four men with him and gets his team and he goes out. They understand, and we get back to the caption boxes. They're headed out of the jungle. He says, Creep got his team. They understood just en- enough English to follow orders. Other than that, he never talked to them. They were only cover men and spotters. Only he was allowed to make the shoot. They were like fingers on a hand. Creep was the thumb. Without him, there was no fist. He could never know what they thought of him, what they called him. They called him Whispering Death. It's a shame he couldn't know that. After filling out a range card, figuring his distances, the waiting would begin. The waiting was the hardest. Sometimes they would lie in a hide for days, not moving, not talking. But the secret to hunting was patience. He never needed intel to spot the collectors. He always knew who they were. They always looked well-fed. They always wore clean clothes. After three tax collectors went for the big dirt nap and the local cell leader decided it was no coincidence, the revenue men traveled with an escort then for all the good it did them. They wised up and started traveling by forest trail and only by night. No good. But you want to know what really spooked the VC? Creep only shot the collector. No matter how many were in the escort, or how in the open they were, he only shot the collector. That scared them most of all. The creep was doing such a good job that pretty soon nobody wanted to be a tax collector. Volunteers were scarce. It became an elected position. The VC had snipers too. A bounty of three years' pay was put on the creep's head. He wore it like a crown. But it couldn't go on forever. In the end, it wasn't the VC who brought down the creep. It was TV. For months, the enemy hunted the creep and could not stop him from killing the revenue men. Walter Cronkite was looking to put his crosshairs on the creep. And they, they have the, TV, the crew there... And his superior says they're going to have to suspend operation because basically he's doing too good of a job and they can't have the publicity that he's giving them. He says the TV will twist the whole thing around, make it look like you're offing innocent farmers, even though he's not. He says, uh, he says, the creep says there's a a lot left to be done. I can't be doing this kind of work at home. They won't let me. They'll lock me up here. I can do it and it's all right. And his superior officer says, Mission Terminator Troop, we're rotating you home, you understand that? And we get back to, they understood, he understood. They wanted to take away his Winchester again. When they came to put him on the chopper the next morning, he was gone. Sixty clicks north, it started all over again. The revenue men started dying. One thirty out, six round to the head. One shot, one kill. From one map preference to another, the ghost sniper would move. And always a trail of dead revenueers was left where he walked. And no one saw him. And he had no friends. No friends. Save one. In the last issue, uh, when Ice and Speed are on their way to take care of a VC sniper named the Ghost, one of the mentions named a guy mentions a guy named the Creep, who in a way is an urban legend of sorts among the troops. And I think that the point is made that Speed's not some sort of urban legend or myth. He's actually been hired to hunt and kill the Ghost. Here we actually see the legend of the creep, and I I like it for two separate reasons. First, it's a good companion to the previous issue. That story with the ghost is about an enemy sniper who has become legend in a sense, and his actions take on an almost mythological level of achievement and accomplishment. The creep mirrors the ghost because he is a legend on the American side, and the way the narration boxes tell the story, you can tell that whomever is narrating only knows what he has heard or what he has been told, and he is essentially telling you a war story. 
The other reason I like this so much is because it has a darkness that matches its title. The creep suggests something dark and sinister underpinnings, and both Dixon's story and Kabasik's artwork serve that idea very well. We don't have the creep be like, say, Iceman, who's a hardened soldier but has a depth as well as a sense of soul to him. Even though we know his backstory and we see him in action, we never really get to actually know the creep. We only know what we know because it's pertinent to the story, which is how legends grow. And I can imagine that over time, the details of the creep and his life have become more and more distorted or exaggerated as the story is told over and over again. You feel bad for him on some level because of his pretty horrible life leading up to his time in the service, but Dixon and Kabasik also give us a feeling of legitimate fear as an audience. We're not supposed to feel sorry for this kid, we're supposed to be scared of him. The way Kabasik and Ramos draw the issue contributes to this very well, too. I've really enjoyed what Wayne Van Zandt has done on the title since he took it over around issue 14, but his realistic art style really wouldn't have worked here. Kabasik and Ramos make this just cartoony enough and are able to make it just that much darker to give it the desired effect, the same way that Russ Heath made the last issue hit home very well. Prior to this, Kabasik did one issue of The Punisher and then would do several issues of The Nom before having a run on Deathlock before he headed over to Valiant in 1994. He doesn't have any credits beyond 1998, so I'm not sure uh, what he's up to now. But some of the stuff is, like I said, it's very, very good. He gets the, he gets this sort of uh, dead-eyed stare of the creep down really well, and the the whole idea of this kid's Winchester rifle, uh, even on page, I think it's there's no page numbers, so it's the third page where they flash back to him as a little kid. Um, and his father hunting and shooting the deer, the rifle and the shot of the rifle is just huge. And it drives home the importance of that, which I which I really, really like. Uh, the bullies are all cartoony-looking, Biff Tannen type of bullies. And I think that that works in this context because, like I said, it's building this legend of who he is. So they're all going to be stereotypical. And so many times you see this kid with this, this just dour look on his face or his face is hidden in shadows um when the irs comes and they take everything away you know kabasik uses panels really 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 well and shows these scenes um that are being narrated you know his his father hitting his mother and and um, his mother you know hitting the bottle and and uh you know him holding his brother and sister and and just these these flashes these moments um really really get the emotion of the scenes over very well Kabasik's style is not unlike some of the uh, like like the joe casadas and the and some of those artists from the 90s but here it's um restrained it's 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 held in it's not um all over the page there's not the sort of crazy slanted scratchy 90s panels that that you get in, in those sorts of comics. There, there really are, I honestly don't think there's, um, I don't know if I'm flipping through, I don't even think there's a full splash page in this entire issue, except for maybe the title page, um, which, which is good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, which is good. And, uh, again, the, the action is done in a way that it's, uh, that it's, not too overblown, you know, um, and and I like how Dixon gets home the fact that he's killing the tax collectors, 
and it all comes back to the IRS and his and his dad. So there's a there's a personal aspect to this. It's a great war story. It's a great legend, and I like how, um, like I said, how it was seeded in just a conversation last issue, and then it was um, followed through here in a really really effective way. And that'll do it for the issue. Uh, when I come back, I'm going to have historical context, letters, and ads. 30 years ago, I walked into a comic store, and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number 1. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. So we're going to fill a huge gap of historical context in right now. Um, that next issue, that way next issue, we can just kind of keep on moving through 1971. And our huge gap for this begins in June 1970, and it'll finish in January of 1971. I'm getting a lot of this information from Wikipedia, as well as a site called The History Place. Uh, I'm going to do a quick rundown date by date instead of trying to work this more of a, as a narrative. Uh, it's kind of phoning it in, but there's a lot to cover here. June 3rd of 1970, the NVA begins a new offensive toward Phnom Penh in Cambodia. The U.S. provides airstrikes to prevent the defeat of Lon Nol's inexperienced young troops. In June 22nd, American usage of jungle defoliants in Vietnam is halted. So it's kind of, at least for now, the end of the use of things like Agent Orange and Napalm. June 24th of 1970, the United States Senate repeals the 1964 Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. Um, This is big because this, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution is the resolution that gave Johnson the authority to escalate troops in Vietnam. Uh, With the repeal of this resolution, this shows that the support for the war has, that had been dwindling, really has dwindled to the point where we are seeing the beginning of the end we are seeing our way out of the war now granted it would take about three more years for the united states to fully withdraw from vietnam but this is this is in the middle this well this is not i don't know if it's the beginning but it's definitely within this period of this protracted drawdown of u.s troops which in many ways would be um they were trying what was called vietnamization which was training the South Vietnamese Army, etc., to uh, to fight more independently of the United States troops to varying degrees of success. 
On June 30th, the United States withdraws from Cambodia, and almost 350 Americans died during that incursion. On August 11th, South Vietnamese troops take over the defensive border positions from the U.S. troops. So here's an example of the Vietnamization that I was talking about. In 19, in, on August 24th, heavy B-52 bombing raids occur along the demilitarized zone. And then on September 5th, Operation Jefferson Glen, the United States 101st Airborne Division and the South Vietnamese 1st Infantry Division initiate a new operation in Hua Tien province, and this will end in October of 1971. This is the last U.S. offensive in Vietnam. September 10th, the Cambodian government forces break the siege of Kong Pong To after three months. Um, one of the things to remember as I, as I go through a lot of this history, and I focus mostly, of course, on Vietnam, but Cambodia begins to go through its own civil war, and you have the rise of Pol Pot, who uh, becomes infamous for uh, the killing fields. And uh, I will touch on that here and there as, as I go through this, even though it's not directly related to the war. It, uh, it's, and it's kind of tangentially related to the war. It is part of the, part of the region. On September 13, 1970, the covert incursion of Operation Tailwind is instigated by the American forces in southeast Laos. This is an interesting operation for a couple of reasons, and I'll read off the summary paragraphs of Operation Tailwind's Wikipedia entry to explain why. Operation Tailwind was a covert incursion into southeastern Laos during the Vietnam War conducted between the 11th to the 13th of September of 1970. The purpose of the operation was to create a diversion for the Royal Lao Army Offensive and to exert pressure on the occupation forces of the People's Army of Vietnam. It involved a company-sized element of U.S. Army Special Forces and Montagnard Commando Hatchet Force of the Military Assistant Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group, or MACV-SOG. So MAC Nearly 30 years later, Piet Peter Arnett narrated a CNN Time magazine report produced by April Oliver, Jack Smith, Pam Hill, and others. The Valley of Death report claimed that sarin nerve gas had been used and other war crimes had been committed by United States forces during Tailwind. This kicked off a controversy that ended in a retraction of the claim by both news organizations and the firing of Peter Arnett and the producers responsible for the claims. October 7th of 1970, during a television speech, President Nixon proposes a standstill ceasefire in which all troops would stop shooting and remain in place pending a formal peace agreement. Hanoi does not respond at first, and then October 8th rejects the idea. On October 9th, the Khmer Republic is proclaimed in Cambodia, which begins the civil war with Khmer Rouge. On October 12th, Nixon announces that the United States would withdraw 40,000 more troops before Christmas. On October 24th, the South Vietnamese troops begin a new offensive into Cambodia, and it's worth pointing out that even after the war, Vietnam War is over, there is still conflict, and I believe a short war in the late 70s between Vietnam and Cambodia. October 30th in Vietnam, the worst monsoon to hit the area in six years causes large floods, kills 293, leaves 200,000 homeless, and virtually halts the Vietnam War. November 4th, Vietnamization. Uh, the United States turns control of the airbase in the Mekong Delta over to South Vietnam. And November 5th, 
The United States Military Assistant Command in Vietnam reports the lowest weekly American soldier death toll in five years. It would be 24 soldiers, which is the fifth consecutive week the death toll is below 50. 431 are reported wounded that week, however. On November 9th, the Supreme Court votes 6-3 to three not to hear a case by the state of Massachusetts about the constitutionality of a state law granting Massachusetts residents the right to refuse the military service in an undeclared war. Don't forget that Vietnam is one of the major reasons we do not have, um, we have selective service, but we don't have the draft. We have gone to a completely all-volunteer army over the last nearly 40 years or so. Um, and, and the draft was not reinstated during uh, the most recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. November 10th, uh, another Vietnamization uh, aspect. For the first time in five years, an entire week ends with no reports of the United States combat facilities in Southeast Asia, uh, mainly because of the increased role that the South Vietnamese Army is, is playing. On November 12th, the trial of William Calley at, begins at Fort Benning concerning the massacre of Vietnamese civilians at My Lai. November 18th, Richard Nixon asked the United States Congress for $155 million in supplemental aid for the Cambodian government. Uh, U.S. 80, $85 million is for military assistance to prevent the overthrow of the government of Lan Nol by the Khmer Rouge in North Vietnam. On November 20th, we drop American troop levels to 334,600. On November 21st, Operation Ivory Coast begins. This is a joint Air Force and Army team raiding the Sondhai prison camp in an attempt to free American POWs thought to be held there, and no Americans are killed, but the prisoners have already moved to another camp. All U.S. POWs are moved to a handful of central prison complexes as a result of this raid. According to Wikipedia, despite the absence of prisoners, the raid was executed with a high degree of success, incurring only two casualties and the loss of two aircraft, one of which had been part of the plan from the start. Criticism of intelligence failures to determine that the camp was empty of U.S. POWs, both public and within the administration of Nixon, led to major reorganization of the United States intelligence community a year later. On December 10th, President Nixon warns Hanoi that more bombing raids may occur if North Vietnamese attacks continue against the South. And then on December 22nd, the Cooper Church Amendment to the United States Defense Appropriations Bill forbids the use of any U.S. ground forces in Laos or Cambodia. American troop levels will drop to 280,000 by year's end. During the year, an estimated 60,000 soldiers experimented with drugs, according to the United States Command. There were also 200 incidents of fragging, in which unpopular officers were attacked with fragmentation grenades by men under their command. In addition, many units are now plagued by racial unrest, reflecting the disharmony back home. And we headed to January of 1971. Right at the beginning of January 4th, Nixon announces that the end is in sight for Vietnam. Of course, as I said, it really will take about two years for that to be true. On January 19th, U.S. fighter bombers launch heavy airstrikes against NVA supply camps in Laos and Cambodia. From January 30th to April 6th, we have Operation Lam Som 719, an all-South Vietnamese ground offensive. 
This occurs as 17,000 South Vietnamese soldiers attack 22,000 NVA inside Laos in an attempt to sever the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Aided by heavy U.S. artillery and airstrikes, along with American helicopter lifts, South Vietnamese troops advance their first objective, but then they stall, thus allowing the NVA time to bring in massive troop reinforcements. By battle's end, 40,000 NVA pursue 8,000 South Vietnamese survivors back across the border. The South Vietnamese suffer 7,682 casualties, nearly half of their original force. The U.S. suffers 250 killed, over 100 helicopters lost, and over 600 damaged while supporting the offensive. NVA losses are estimated up to about 20,000 as a result of the intense American bombardment. Also among those killed was Life magazine photographer Larry Burroughs, who had been working in Vietnam for 10 years. Although an upbeat President Nixon declares after the battle that Vietnamization has succeeded, the failed offensive indicates true Vietnamization of the war may be difficult to achieve. And let's finish off by taking a look at letters and ads incoming this month. I think it's been a while since we've had a uh, a letter column. Although then again, it's been a f- I've been a little late on this episode, so who knows. Uh, we have only three letters. The first is from Joseph F. Connolly. The second, he's a master sergeant who was a master sergeant in the U.S. Army Special Forces in Vietnam six, in 1963, uh, from 65 to 67. He also says Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. He says, reference to the question raised by the person whose name and address were withheld in the re- by request in issue 65, asking why the troops in the Persian Gulf did so well and the troops in Vietnam did so poorly and asking someone to set him or her straight, no problem. Starting in 1965, American troops were sent to Vietnam to maintain the territorial integrity of that country until such time as it was capable of self-defense. In the Tet Offensive of 1968, the Americans and South Vietnamese destroyed the Viet Cong as a fighting force. In the Easter Offensive in 1972, the Army of Vietnam held against a North Vietnamese invasion led by 600 tanks without an in, in, intervention by American ground forces thus proving their ability to manage the level of hostilities that existed at that time. The troop withdrawal begun in 1972 was completed in 1973. In 1975, with no American ground combat troops in Vietnam and Congress refusing to honor our commitment to our allies, South Vietnam was again invaded and fell. The American troops had, without question, accomplished the military mission given to them. In 1991, after the largest military buildup since World War II, American troops were sent into Iraq and Kuwait to liberate the latter. This was accomplished in a totally one-sided air war and a small series of ground firefights known as the Land War. This was completed in 100 hours. Again, the American troops accomplished the mission given to them. The future, again, is uncertain. Those are the essential facts. The impressions you hold outside these facts are generally the result of media representation and fairly terrible scholarship in contemporary history. Remember that PBS had to apologize for the inaccuracy and bias of their Vietnam series, but it is still the favorite tool in academia on the subject. As to drug use among the troops in Vietnam, remember that American youth had a drug culture during this period and military recruits and draftees come out of the general population in the appropriate age group. According to the United States Department of Justice, however, Vietnam veterans are less likely to use drugs than non-Vietnam veterans in the same age group. And they're also less likely to become involved in the criminal justice system. And then uh, the editor says, thanks for writing the time to write, Joe. Hopefully it answered that person's questions. And I read the whole thing because it was a really interesting letter in that way. Um, Rick Stanfill from Las Vegas, Nebraska? Huh. That's got to be a typo. 
Um, I'm 14 years old. I love your comics. I've trained. I have tried to learn everything I can about the Vietnam War. Uh, the company you feature prominently is the 23rd Infantry Division, Tropic Lightning. Recently, I came across a magazine about the Vietnam War that stated the 23rd was actually called AmeriCal, and it was the 25th Infantry that was Tropic Lightning. Who's right? How can I obtain back issues? Thanks for the information, Rick. Uh, we checked the book Vietnam Order of Battle by Shelby Stanton, Captain U.S. Army Retired. It was Vita AmeriCal that was 23rd's nickname. As for the back issues, see the box at the beginning of the letters page. Uh, dear editors... I think the nom is the best comic of Mar- Marvel Comics here in Portugal about the artwork Wayne Vance had is okay. <laughs> Juan Paula Mesquita from Braga, Portugal. Somebody said, and then they say, well, you can't please all the people all the time. Uh, nom notes this month. AO's area of operation. Brucellosis is a disease that affects cattle. MOS, Military Occupational Specialty, ARVN, Army of the Republic of Vietnam. Clicks, Kilometers, Uncle Ho is Ho Chi Minh, Victor Charles is the Viet Cong, and a ville is a village. Uh, they tell us to keep sending the letters, and the, there's a preview box for next issue, which is the first of a two-part Punisher story. Yep, Punisher's coming back to the NOM. Ads this month... We have Super Off-Road for the Super Nintendo and the Game Boy from Trade West, which is basically a monster truck off-road rally game. Um, score 1992 action cards. And then the same Marvel Classic Marvel Tees ad. Coming soon from TSR, the Al-Kadim campaign. Uh, a new adventure world awaits you. It looks like kind of a Middle Eastern role-based, uh, you know, Sinbad, that type of thing, uh, role-playing game. Oh, we've got entertainment this month. Uh, all orders sent by 18th get a free, huge, full-color poster of the Youngblood by Rob Liefeld. Introducing an all-new team of mutant heroes created, written, drawn, and Rob by Rob X-Force Liefeld. Youngblood, number one, features the origin of this hot new team and introduces a gritty new universe of Heroes and Village. Highest possible recommendation. Yeah. Luke Cage is back, bigger, meaner, and badder than ever. Captain America 400 has a gateful cover. Ghost Rider number 25 will be blisteringly hot. Includes a four-page four-page die-cut cover with a pop-up center. It's 52 pages. Aw, yeah. Hulk 393 features a foil cover, just like Silver Surfer number 50. Ooh, an amazing Spider-Man 362 features a new Venom-like villain named Carnage. The X-Force and X-Men annuals. Uh, something about a future past annual storyline? Not familiar. I might have skipped those annuals when I was reading the X-Men. I, don't, I think I only bought like one of the X-Men annuals. It was uncanny with the Executioner as the character. I think Jason Pearson did that. Uh, Nomad. Nomad returns in a violent new series with stunning art. Nomad number one includes a fold-out poster map cover. I can't miss. And uh, over the DC Comics side, by the way, Armageddon Armageddon Inferno number one and two are on sale for 79 cents a piece. It shows you how well that series was received. Moving on, uh, there's a two-page ad for the Star Trek, it looks like for the for the NES, uh, Star Trek game, uh, Star Trek this year uh, when I'm recording this, Star Trek's um, celebrating its uh, 50th anniversary and 
in this uh, this particular uh, ad in this particular comic book year here uh, in the early 90s, it was celebrating its 25th anniversary. I had a lot of 25th anniversary stuff. I had this really cool poster that I don't know what happened to it, but it was uh, like Kirk and Picard, and, and uh, it was like painted. It was really, really cool. They had these really great trading cards. One was like there was like an original series uh, set and a, and a Next Generation set. Uh, Star Trek VI came out, I believe, this year. Star Trek's 25th anniversary was like really, really fun from what I remember. Bullpen bulletins this month. We've got Stan, um, Stan talking about the Spider-Man uh, newspaper strip, which is still going, by the way. Uh, let's see. Um, they're 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 um, plugging Gru by Sergio Aragones. Uh, they had a retreat, an editorial retreat. Um, Joe Sinnott celebrated his sixty fifth birthday. Um, and they're just uh, Bob Budiansky got married. Um, and Peter David and his wife gave birth to their daughter Ariel. And they say, in closing, we would like to leave you with this, our foremost New Year's resolution. We resolve that this year Mighty Marvel will not resort to any cheap gimmicks to sell our books. We will not do any three multiple covers, glow-in-the-dark covers, 3D covers, hologram covers, embossed covers, peanut butter and jelly covers, or any tackle promotional tricks to sell our what's that? You folks like all those special format covers? Then forget the resolution. No sooner made than broken. Hardy har har. Uh, on the coolometer in January, we're going from cool to non cool. There's non sexual harassment, Red Fox, and Margaret. Pre modern art, Marvel, Marvel Year in Review, Planet Hollywood, Simon Beasley, Snow Days, Sumo Wrestlers, Bullwinkle, Adverbs, Political Incorrectness, Howard Stern, Tex Mex Food, The Theory of Everything, Doctor Strange's Sidekick, Rintrath, Rintra, Virtual Illusion. Squirrel Girl, Pregnant Women on Magazine Covers. Oh, this must have been around the time Demi Moore did those covers. Parodies of Same, and then Scarlet, the sequel to Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Great Eastern Comic Conventions are in Chicago, London, Paramus, Boston, Springfield, Miami, Minneapolis, Columbus, Nashville, New Haven, etc. There's an ad for the Kubert School. 9091 prices in 1992 showing Thor and Iron Man, our subscription ad, where they're rerunning all those Three Musketeers Big on chocolate ads. And on the back cover, the Terminator 2 Judgment Day game on NES and Game Boy. And that'll do it. Uh, next time around, I'm going to have episode 75, which, if everything goes right, is going to be a special movie episode. So, And hopefully I'll have the special guest that I had planned on having. Uh, and then after that, we'll pick up with the next issue of the nom which will be the next the first part of the next punisher story so until then don't forget to leave comments and emails maybe leave an itunes review or two it's been a long time since i had one of those and thank you once again for listening and take care i don't know what i'm up against i don't know what it's all
You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom. I love you.